Okay, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you reach out to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we encounter the Lord Jesus Christ in the pages of the Bible. And we thank you for the way that we encounter him in the Gospel so personally and directly. And we give you thanks for Matthew's Gospel and uh, for the great speeches from Jesus in Matthew's Gospel where we hear the Lord Jesus uh, speak personally and directly. And uh, we thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. We pray that you would help us to hear, to have ears to hear, and to go out to do your will and to your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Now the Sermon on the Mount uh, sometimes we described as the most famous sermon ever preached. And uh, I suppose in some ways it's become part of um, popular culture, the popular culture around us. Uh, So this would be a sort of caricature of it, I suppose. A picture like this is a medieval picture, I think. Um, Actually, I think this is a version of the sermon where uh, Jesus began with an anecdote about fishing. Um, So maybe not quite quite the version we have in Matthew's Gospel. Some aspects of it are reasonably accurate. Jesus is sitting down. That was a traditional thing for, for a rabbi to do. His disciples are standing around him like that. That also would be the, uh, the way it would happen. And then this motley lot around here are the crowd uh, kind of listening in at the sides. Um, so that's quite a, a, a helpful um, arrangement uh, to remember as we go through. Uh, this um, Jesus in the middle, his disciples around him standing and then the crowd around him uh, like that. Um, and it's become a familiar image, I suppose, uh, within our culture. And there's something about the Sermon on the Mount that actually strikes a chord way beyond Christian circles. And it's quite striking how this has an effect on people sometimes. I was reading this book uh, recently. It's by a man called Kurt Vonnegut, who was um, a science fiction writer, a humanist and an atheist. And uh, yet, listen what, to what he says about the Sermon on the Mount. He, was, he became, uh, in fact, the honorary... Um, head of the American Humanist Association. Um, He says this, How do humanists feel about Jesus? Uh, I say of Jesus, as all humanists do, if what he said is good, and so much of it is absolutely beautiful, what does it matter if he he was God or not? Now we reply, of course, it matters an enormous amount. Uh, But uh, Kurt Vonnegut goes on to say, But if Christ hadn't delivered the Sermon on the Mount with its message of mercy and pity, I wouldn't want to be a human being. That's a very striking and remarkable thing for a non-Christian to say, isn't it? If Christ hadn't delivered the Sermon on the Mount with its message of mercy and pity, I wouldn't want to be a human being. You know, it strikes that kind of chord with people. However, if we're honest, in Christian circles it doesn't always have that kind of effect. It can lead rather more to a sense of discouragement. Uh, You see, once uh, we're perhaps more familiar uh, with the Sermon on the Mount, we might well find it um, as if it's just unadulterated 
uh, moralism. So we read the sermon and we think, well, how does this fit in with the gospel of grace that I thought I understood? Uh, we're very, very high moral standards um, in the sermon, of course. Um, that it's merely about a conviction of sin. Uh, you know, so Jesus raises these very high standards within the sermon and uh, the only possible response in the end is for us to be completely distraught uh, uh, about our inability to put those things into action and therefore to come to him for grace. Um, you may well have heard uh, the Sermon on the Mount preached in, in exactly that, that kind of way and there's an element of truth in it, as we'll see, uh, but we kind of wonder whether that might be how that can be the whole story. Uh, and certainly we'll have heard uh, or thought about the, the Sermon on the Mount out of context, out of its context uh, within the whole of Matthew's Gospel. All of these things can lead to uh, a discouragement. It can feel hard work working through this sermon and uh, we don't feel particularly inspired uh, when we come out at the other end of it. And you might be thinking, so in small groups you've been doing Ecclesiastes last term, you don't want that ex- Experience again, coming possibly have something a bit more positive this time, please. Okay, so if you're, if you're thinking that, then I want to encourage you this morning that that's not entirely the line we're going to go down um, this morning. What I want us uh, to do uh, is to take it, what might be to you a different perspective on the Sermon on the Mount. Most of us will have heard the Sermon on the Mount, uh, read the Sermon on the Mount, done it in Bible studies, heard sermons on it. This will quite possibly be a different perspective on it, in that what we're going to do is what I've called a missionary perspective on the Sermon on the Mount. It's actually, um, as we'll see in a moment, uh, beginning with the Great Commission, which is the way that uh, Matthew's Gospel ends, coming back from the Great Commission to the Sermon on the Mount to learn how to do mission. Not everything that there is to learn about mission, but the foundations of mission, the foundations of mission, what needs to be put in place within the discipleship community, within the Christian community, uh, such that uh, mission can be effective, uh, the foundations for mission. So perhaps a, a better title than the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount is not a particularly exciting way of describing this speech, it would be um, something like uh, mission foundations, mission foundations. Um, or if you wanted to give it a, a, a dull title, Mission Foundations 101 or something like that. Okay, that's what Jesus is teaching in this module, if you like, of Matthew's Gospel. I want, what I want to do very briefly at the beginning is to take you through some steps involved, that might be involved in taking a missionary perspective on the Sermon on the Mount um, in a few steps. Beginning with the background, uh, we're trying to do this which is what we talked about earlier, read it normally, not jumping about, not picking and choosing, reading the Gospel of Matthew from beginning to end, um, uh, but then reading it over and over again. Uh, Thinking first then about the background um, in the Old Testament, and especially the background in the book of Isaiah. Uh, You find over and over again, although the, uh, the Matthew refers back to all sorts of different parts of the Old Testament. It's the book of Isaiah with which he is uh, particularly concerned. And you might say that one, one way of putting Matthew's message is that Jesus has come to fulfil, uh, to bring into reality everything that Isaiah talked about. That would be one way of summarising Matthew's Gospel. 
Um, and in particular, what are called the servant songs in the middle of Isaiah. So these are the four servant songs. Uh, the one on whom the Spirit rests, first song. Uh, the second song, a light to the nations, bringing salvation. Uh, third song, the one whose tribulation or suffering leads to vindication or release. Uh, the fourth song, probably the most famous servant song, the servant suffers, the suffering servant uh, suffers as a curse barrier, bearer for others to bring them forgiveness of sins. Uh, those songs are right at the centre of Isaiah and uh, they are um, the, 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 the way that Isaiah talks about how God is going to bring the massive, enormous transformation in the world that he has promised uh, to bring. Uh, so the book of Isaiah begins with a, a corrupt Jerusalem ends with a glorified Jerusalem and Zion, one that um, spreads light to the whole world and results in a global uh, transformation. It's the servant in the middle of the, of the book uh, who um, executes that transformation, brings about that transformation. And part of Matthew's message is going to be that Jesus has come as the servant of the Lord uh, to do this. And uh, in his death and resurrection achieves the, 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 the focus of that work, especially the focus of that work, suffering for the people as a curse bearer for others. Now, uh, here's some, some terminology. I've got this kind of longer versions of this on your handout. Uh, so when I talk about, it might find me lapsing into what you might call the Servant Programme, capital S, Servant Programme, is the programme of God in Isaiah to bring forgiveness of sins to his people and a salvation that will flow over into the whole world. That's God's missionary statement, if you like, from the book of Isaiah. Uh, and within that, we can talk about... Why is my laughter starting working? <laughs> Uh, what we call the servant mandate. This is the particular task of the servant of the Lord, who turns out to be Jesus, uh, takes on. It's going to make that program possible and enable its, com- its completion. This is the suffering that the servant goes through. This is what Jesus goes through in his death and resurrection uh, to bring about that servant program for the, for, for, for the world. Okay, so that's the wider, wider context in, in Isaiah and in uh, Matthew. And in Matthew's Gospel, we find that the point at which Jesus takes on uh, that servant mandate was his baptism. And we know that from a, uh, from a couple, of, couple of reasons. Uh, in fact, you've got Matthew chapter 3 open in front of you. Uh, you can see them for yourselves. The Spirit, the one who, remember, uh, first servant song, the one on whom the Spirit rests is the servant. That's the first clue. And then the words of the Father... Uh, to his son uh, this is my son uh, the beloved uh, with him I am well pleased again the, those are words uh, pretty much taken from Isaiah uh, chapter 42 verse 1 so what's happening at, at Jesus' baptism is that he's publicly taking on this role that his father has given him he's going to the cross he's going to be uh, he's going to suffer for his people he's going to take the curse of God upon himself um, as uh, the fourth servant song says and that's going to bring release for the people, um, forgiveness of sins. Um, it's going to enable the people to become again uh, what they should be. Okay, so that has already happened in Matthew's Gospel when we, when we come to the Sermon on the Mount. So this whole servant process has already begun by this point. At this point, Jesus has begun um, his ministry, proclaiming the kingdom of the heavens. We'll think about what the, uh, the kingdom of the heavens uh, shortly. And he's also begun to make disciples. That's the other uh, key thing. He's come to call disciples and he's making disciples. And then he sits down and in the Sermon on the Mount he begins 
to teach them. So that's the background. Now, as he sits down and teaches them, we need to note that double audience that I brought your attention to right at the beginning. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up into a mountainside and sat down, as uh, rabbis did at the time. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying... So there are the disciples there, immediately around them. He's speaking to them, but he's speaking in the, in the listening of the crowd. The, the crowd are listening in, and uh, they reappear right at the very end of the sermon and uh, express their amazement at everything they've heard at Jesus' authority. So it's very helpful, I think, to have that double audience in mind as we come into this. Um, that means that one of the things that's going to happen uh, is that you can think about re- reading the, the, the sermon from, from, two, from two points of view, if you like, from two audiences. One is an outsider, remember the crowd, if you like, someone who's, who doesn't uh, fully know Jesus yet, hasn't been caught up in what Jesus is doing, hasn't been served by Jesus as the servant. Uh, amazement is going to be your reaction. Uh, first, uh, so chapter 7, verse Uh, 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And also, if you've been listening carefully to what Jesus has been saying, uh, you will be deeply convicted of your sin because the standards that Jesus is holding up are very high and you will realise very freely and and openly how far short uh, you you fall from them. Okay, so amazement and conviction of sin is one way that the sermon is going to work, especially for those on the outside, especially for the crowd. It will, um, uh, on some then, this will have that hum- a humbling purpose, a humbling purpose. So we don't want to do, neglect that side of the sermon, that's an important aspect of the sermon, but it's certainly not the only thing going on in the sermon, um, as we'll see uh, the other thing that we need to do, of course, is to read on beyond the sermon, right to the end of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, this is what I was trying to do in the sermon on Sunday, uh, last Sunday evening. Right through to the end of it, to the uh, Great Commission at the end of the Gospel. Go therefore, says Jesus, and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, and remember I am with you always to the end of the age. Make disciples. That's interesting, isn't it? Because we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount at this point, in the, uh, at that point in the, in, the, in the Gospel, only Jesus is making disciples. That's been his task. Then right at the end of the Gospel, when he sends them out in the Great Commission, he incorporates them into that task. It's them that's going to then make disciples in all the nations. This is the point at which the, his, Jesus' particular servant work has been completed. He has uh, died and has been raised... Uh, for the give, forgiveness of, their, uh, of sins. He has served his people. And once the disciples have been served by Jesus, then they can be drawn in, incorporated into the servant work that he's doing in the nations, bringing light uh, to the nations. But then look at verse 20, teaching them, them to observe everything I have commanded you. That should then raise the question when we get to that point, well, what was that? What has he commanded them? What has he taught them? And that's what takes us then back uh, to the Sermon on the Mount to to, to read exactly what that is. Um, So that means that we can read the sermon again 
reading through Matthew's Gospel, at least for the, the second time, from a very different perspective, as disciples of Jesus who have been firstly humbled to acknowledge personal failure. So think of the, the storyline of the disciples in Matthew's Gospel. In particular, think of Peter, you know, this, this disciple with enormous amounts of bravado through much of the, much of the Gospel, a bit dim-witted, but lots of bravado. Peter has been humbled. Uh, when it came to it, when the pressure was on, uh, he was in the outside courts denying Jesus while Jesus was being resolute on the inside, uh, suffering and going to the cross. Peter failed. Jesus succeeded. Peter has been humbled by the end of the Gospel. Peter is now in a position to remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount and put it into practice. So we read it as humbled uh, disciples, served by Jesus the servant for the forgiveness of our sins. Okay? You can only begin to serve in the way that's described in the Sermon on the Mount once you have been served and then incorporated finally into God's missionary family, calling him Father. You're in covenant relationship with him through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a part of that family, as a part of that union with the Lord Jesus Christ, you can then go out and do this task of making disciples in the nations. And part of that is going to be putting into practice some of the things that Jesus has taught uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. And the other things that he teaches in Matthew's Gospel as well, but this is going to be the foundation uh, of all of that. So that's the kind of approach that we're going to take. Um, that means that we, can be, we are commissioned to serve with Jesus, participating in this servant programme uh, for the world to bring light uh, to the nations. Now, five point, quick consequences of that to a reading through. Uh, as we're reading through, we're looking for more than a conviction of sin, but certainly not less than. So the, the, the sermon does, yeah, certainly serve to convict us of our sin. We're looking for more than that. We're looking for actually to put this into practice in some way. Uh, we're also, this is probably the most important uh, pastoral advice that I'll be able to give you this morning. It also encourages us to keep coming back to the beginning of the sermon. I said uh, in just, just a moment ago that we come as disciples who have been humbled to acknowledge personal failure. Now what that does is when we come back to the beginning of the sermon, so Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, it keys into precisely how the sermon begins. Because the sermon begins with a profound note of encouragement to those who have been humbled. These are the Beatitudes, especially the first four Beatitudes, right at the beginning of the sermon. This is going to be our safety net for reading the sermon. There are many, many things we're going to find very, very demanding in what Jesus asks us to do. They may well lead us to a sense of despair. Well, good. But what that should do then is humble us such that we come back to the beginning again. And then once we come back to the beginning, we can start working through again. So these are very, very important verses. Uh, verses 3 to 6 of chapter 5. Uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. They are the safety net at the beginning of the sermon. I was preaching these verses to myself this morning. Uh, these are the verses you need 
when you think when, when you're thinking as I was this morning, uh, who am I to, to teach this kind of stuff, these kind of standards that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount? Who am I to do that? Well, I come back to the beginning of the sermon and I read, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is, is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek or humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled we haven't got that humble mind uh, when we approach the sermon, the Beatitudes and the beginning of the Beatitudes will get us into the right frame in order to actually take this on. Uh, Notice too the emphasis throughout the sermon on God the Father. God the Father. Now this is uh, striking and worth noting I think so I think we might pause at this point And uh, if in your groups you could just have a quick look through the sermon and see how often the Father is mentioned. So I want you to see that first. But also as you're doing so, to ask the question, as you're doing so, why is God the Father mentioned so often in this sermon? Why is there this profound emphasis on him? Let's just have a few minutes uh, thinking about that. Okay, uh, before we too much run out of time. So I've kind of done the job for you here. See on the left hand side here, these are the verses that mention Father in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, 17 instances of that. I don't know if you managed to pick those up. Um, well, what are some of the more important ones uh, that you think where Father is mentioned? Any, any suggestions? One thing I have suggested was the word before Father that more Our Father, your Father. Yes. So what does, it, what does that remind the disciples? Yes, it's, it's drawn into this family again. It's from that position in which we, we read, read, read the sermon. Isn't it? It's not as the outsider, it's as the insider, the one adopted into a particular family, uh, with a particular family business to go, to, to go about. So that's going to be very helpful, isn't it? Yeah, thank you. Any other comments, important points? Yes, that's right. So in the Lord's Prayer, I mean, the Lord's Prayer is right, right at the heart of the, of, of the sermon, or what we call the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and it begins with this emphasis on Father. And it has your, 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 your Father forgiving you so again, that's, that's reminding us of the, of, the, of the Matthew 28 disciple, isn't it? The one who's been forgiven because of the work of Jesus and um, adopted into this family and going about this task as uh, forgiven sinners uh, within this uh, missionary, missionary family. So that's all very helpful kind of background perspective, I think. Going back... Uh, Right, so where do we get with the consequences? More than a conviction of sin. Keep coming back to the Beatitudes. Note the emphasis on God the Father throughout the sermon. 
Uh, don't slip into reading this as works righteousness. That would be an, um, an easy mistake if you took it all out of context and forgot about that stuff about forgiveness of sins and being adopted into the family and stopped reading it from a Matthew 28 perspective. And don't read this as incompatible with uh, the Apostle Paul. Now, I'm not going to go into that now. We'll see why this is true later, but it is uh, a question that uh, will almost inevitably come up. If it's not come up in your own mind, it will come up in the minds of some of uh, uh, those in your groups. How do we reconcile the Sermon on the Mount with the book of Galatians, for example? Um, so we'll come to that in just a moment. Now, how's the, the uh, sermon structured? I'll go through this stuff quite quickly because you'll be looking at this in much more detail in the weeks to come. Um, it um, roughly seems to split into three big sections with an introductory sec- section which sets the pattern of the service, humility and service, uh, we'll, I'll look at, we'll look at this begin, opening section in a little more detail in a second. Moving on to the big central section, which is uh, 5.17 through the 7.12, uh, begins with that, 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 that key phrase, <coughs> law and prophets, in 5.17. It comes up again in 7.12. We were looking at that earlier. Um, there are two parts to that. Uh, there's a ch- the chapter 5 material, which seems to be about displaying our Father through certain kinds of uh, behaviour. And then there's the, the, uh, the dependency side of things, uh, dependent especially upon our Father, especially in prayer. And that's the emphasis in the, the second part from chapter 6 uh, through into chapter 7. And then finally, uh, as with many sermons, I suppose, a sort of final exhortation uh, to choose the right path, follow the right path, uh, build foundations, make sure you don't fall away from that, make sure you don't get deceived, um, and then build, yeah, build these foundations for the task that you've been set to do um, in the world. Now, just focusing in very, um, uh, very briefly into the very, the, the very first part of this, where the pattern is set up in chapter 5. So, so this table is actually in the, in the study notes um, on, uh, towards the end of your, your handout. Uh, but it does seem to go like this. It's very important to get straight. This will be the first study that you look at. Um, The pattern set up. So the Beatitudes are here. Uh, So this sequence of of blessings, which seems to split into two, beginning with uh, the kind of, the the nature of someone who's been brought into God's family. Uh, Broken, humbled, but willing people, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And then the second four Beatitudes, uh, much more describing the task that the disciples have been given to do in the world. That's... uh, um, proclaiming mercy, being peacemakers, being consistent in their behaviour, that is pure of heart, uh, suffering because of their righteousness, those kinds of things. So we're talking about the nature of, of, the, of the Christian family and then, the, if you like, the function or purpose of the Christian family in the world. Okay, that kind of division. That seems to me to be uh, then picked up in this distinction that then comes between salt and 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 light. So the salt describes the nature of God's covenant people, uh, while the light describes their function. And that's particularly harking back to uh, Isaiah uh, 49, verse 6, uh, where the servant is sent out uh, to bring light to the nations. Um, we'll talk more about... So salt is not, it's not, nothing to do with that being a preservative in the world, nothing about that. It's much more likely to be about being what's called in the Old Testament the, the salt of the covenant, God's covenant people. 
And if you lose that covenant identity, says Jesus, then you are useless. You won't be able to do the function that you've been given. Uh, you're just fit to be uh, trampled into the ground. Okay? That's how the pattern is set up in the beginning. Uh, and you can see there's a, there's a bit of a movement. This is, these are the foundations of the, of the Christian community. This is what they're going to be doing. These are, again, these are the foundations of the Christian community. Humble, based on God's promises, you know, formed by Jesus, and this is what you're going to be doing in the world. Okay? And if, you, if you forget these uh, foundational parts, then these second parts will indeed be impossible. But, with these in place, uh, then what we've been asked to do in Jesus and by his grace is possible. So that's the way in which we come into the, to the sermon. Um, now I'm running out of time. The characters, um, it's an interesting thing, although this is a, a speech, so there are still quite a number of characters involved. There's Jesus, of course, who's giving the sermon. Uh, there's the Father, as we just noted. Um, there are the crowds listening in at the sides. Uh, there are the disciples who are closest to Jesus. Uh, there are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And then there are the Gentiles, also mentioned. They're not there at the time, but Jesus uh, refers to them on a, a number of important occasions. Um, now, it's interesting, although Jesus is drawing attention to his father more than anyone else, um, uh, he remains the main character here. He's the speaker, of course. And time and time again, uh, we get an, a sense that, uh, of his enormous authority as he speaks. So, I tell you, I have come to fulfill the law of the prophets. Okay. Now, you have heard this, but I say to you, it is in many ways all about Jesus, although it's also all about the Father. It is also, it, it is all about Jesus. Uh, the crowds and disciples form this double audience, as we've been talking about. The, the sermon's going to function in different ways to these different groups of people. Uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are the scribes. Um, are important characters too. Because what you discover, especially when you get to the end of Matthew's Gospel, uh, Matthew chapter 23, um, is that the Pharisees and the, and the teachers of the law uh, represent what we might call a rival missionary movement. Okay? They are also out to make disciples, uh, not of Jesus, but of themselves, and uh, disciples whom they are going to lead into destruction. Okay, so that's the rival missionary movement that Jesus will often refer to throughout the sermon. And he's warning the people and his disciples against this rival missionary movement. So, chapter 5, verse 20, which uh, um, is often thought to be a very difficult verse, starts to make a lot more sense um, when you understand that. So Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of, of heaven. Uh, well, it's so understood that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law represent a rival missionary movement that's heading for destruction, well then, of course, uh, you've got to make sure that you avoid that and avoid their way of doing things. Uh, we'll come back to that again in a moment. Um, briefly. Uh, this is the kind of decision, then, that's set up um, for, for, for the person who, who listens to the Sermon on the Mount there are two parts. This is how the sermon ends, isn't it? So, uh, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Um, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Small is the gate, narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. There are two paths that are being laid out for the disciples. 
this is one path, this is the path that Jesus is exhorting them to follow. It's one that begins with humility, as we've seen from the Beatitudes. Um, it's founded upon covenant dependency up, uh, upon the Father. Okay? It's prayer-based. Okay? And it's, so that's its foundations, that's the root of it, if you like. Uh, but these are the shoots. Uh, this is following the teaching of Jesus, being light in the world, participating in this servant program, and the reward of that is going to be participating in the kingdom in the future. Okay, that is, that is the reassurance that, that Jesus brings to those on this path. Uh, the alternative path, which Jesus is warning against, is the path that's being the people that the, this rival missionary movement is dragging people down. There's no humility involved. There's no proper dependency upon God. Uh, religious acts are done before men. They're not done in dependency upon God. Uh, it's seeking treasure on earth rather than treasure in heaven. Uh, so it has no proper foundations. Um, it follows the instruction of the teachers of the law, uh, which is superficial and focused on the outside, external um, uh, conformity to the law and has no heart in it. That is the way of the Pharisee. Um, it's also the way of the Gentile who is anxious and uh, 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 just out for what they can get uh, doesn't know anything it come from has no dependency upon God in prayer and the outcome along that path is going to be destruction so in some ways the sermon is very simple there are two paths, there are two ways to live okay? there is this path which leads to the kingdom and there is this path that leads to destruction make sure you are on this path don't be deceived into going down this path uh, that is what the sermon is all about A couple of terminological things, uh, very briefly as we finish. Um, So the kingdom of the heavens, uh, in Matthew's Gospel there's this big distinction between the heavens on the one hand, this is the realm of God where God is unopposed in his rule, and then there's the earth. As things stand, as Jesus comes into the world, those those two areas, if you like, are in opposition to one another. There is conflict between them. Um, but what Jesus has come to do is to bring that conflict to an end. This is what the work he does as a son of man, uh, drawing from uh, Daniel chapter 7, uh, bringing heaven and earth together. And the point, the trajectory on which all that is heading towards, where uh, heaven and earth are brought together in the future, is uh, what uh, Jesus calls the kingdom of the heavens. So it has that fu- future focus to it. Uh, the point at which uh, heaven and earth is rec- reconciled, the thing we pray for when we pray the Lord's Prayer, uh, your will be done in, in, in earth as in heaven, it's what we're praying for. Um, at, at that point in the future, it's all brought together, uh, God's unopposed rule over the heavens and the earth. This is the, the fulfilment of Isaiah's vision for the glory of God to fill the world. Um, that's what the kingdom is all about. Now, uh, there's this other term, righteousness, which I mentioned earlier, which appears many, many times um, in, the, in, in the Gospel. Now, that might throw us. Uh, that might throw us because um, we feel uncomfortable talking about righteousness in the way that Jesus talks about in the sermon. We saw that even with the verse we just looked at, chapter 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of the heavens. It's probably helpful to uh, uh, think of righteousness, though, something like this. So this is my uh, sort of broad 
um, umbrella term of definition for what righteousness is, is is roughly speaking an alignment with the will of God. Uh, so Jesus also talks in the ser- sermon about doing the will of God. It's about an alignment with the will of God, uh, which is more than just an ethical alignment. So it's more than doing just what God wants in terms of uh, uh, obedience and practice. It's an alignment with his will in terms of what he's doing in the world, like this servant program that we've talked about. Uh, but, it, it, but it certainly includes that, those kind of behavioural things, which is why um, Jesus does talk about that in chapter 5 of the sermon. Um, Jesus has used this term righteousness to talk about his own servant ministry, so at his baptism, it is necessary for us to do this for righteousness' sake. Why does Jesus say that? Well, what he means is that if I'm going to be aligned to what God's will in bringing about this servant work in the world, then I must be baptised and take on this task. Okay, so that's, that, that's how Matthew and Jesus are using this term within the Gospel. Now, although that's, that's quite a good general definition, what you'll find across the different books of the Bible is that you get different emphases on that in different places. So Paul's emphasis in his, in his books when he talks about justification by faith or, or being declared righteous by faith is, much, is very much on how someone comes, comes into that state of alignment with the will of God uh, and thus saved on the day of judgment. And his uh, important message there, of course, is that, is, that by, is that is by Christ alone and by grace alone. Now that's not alien to Matthew's Gospel because as we've seen, the alignment only comes at the end of the Gospel once the disciples have been served, their sins have been forgiven and they've been incorporated into God's family. So Matthew and Paul are actually saying the same thing, although they may be using different language to describe it. Jesus' emphasis on the Sermon on the Mount is much more on how that kind of alignment is going to be expressed in practice, given the will of God to bring light to the nations, you know, this servant program that, that the Lord has in mind. Um, but again, that's not entirely alien from Paul either. So you look at the end of Paul's letters and he'll often talk about how do you express uh, your covenant relationship in Jesus Christ in practice. Um, so uh, the end of uh, Romans, the end of Galatians, the end of Ephesians will focus on that, that, that kind of practical, ethical task. So we mustn't get, uh, side, we mustn't get um, deceived by this term and think that uh, Paul and Jesus are talking about different things. They're actually talking about the same thing. We've just got to be aware of the different ways in which they're saying it. Is the sermon about perfection? Uh, so that's a word that comes up in uh, chapter 5, verse 48. Uh, basic answer, no. It's extremely unhelpful, I think, to translate that this as perfect because what comes into our mind when we think of that is we think about a moral perfection. That is not what Jesus is talking about at that point. Um, in fact, you'll see in chapter 19, verse 21, the same term comes again. Again, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. It's much more likely, therefore, that this word that's often translated as perfect is more about being consistent. Uh, um, being cons- uh, so in this case, or complete. Uh, so if you want to be complete as a disciple, go and do this, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Uh, if you want to be consistent in your love to friend and enemy, be like your father is consistent to his love in friend and enemy. That's the context in which that verse takes place. But we'll look at that more in detail when you get to it in the studies. So it's not about perfection, moral perfection as we might think about it. Uh, final thing to say, the conclusion of the sermon, 
has this image of a house built on the rock and a house built on the sand. Uh, Many, many Sunday school expositions uh, wrongly, um, perhaps slightly unhealthy, talk about, oh, this is the life that's founded on Jesus and this is the life that's not founded on Jesus. What Jesus actually says is that uh, this is the the life, this is the house that's built on listening to Jesus and doing his words. There is a practical, ethical expression to this. It's not just about um, a profession of faith. Um, It's about an active expression of it. Uh, But what I want you to see in the the big span of Matthew's Gospel is that that the kind of house that Jesus probably has in mind, what, what, what are we building? What are we building? Well, we're building this servant's work. Uh, the foundations are there in the Sermon on the Mount, but it's going to go on to connect it to what Jesus is going to go on to say about mission, proclaiming the kingdom. Uh, that's chapter 10 of the Gospel. About doing that um, with confidence in the kingdom. That's chapter 13. Doing that as a, as a church family, looking after one another, forgiving one another. That's chapter 18. Persevering through to the end. That's chapters uh, 24 and 25. Uh, so the foundation uh, then... This is the foundation then for the missionary task uh, that Jesus is setting uh, before us. So what's the purpose of the sermon? And uh, I think we can say that it has a double purpose depending on where you are. If you're in the crowd, it has this purpose of, of, of amazement, of seeing Jesus' authority, a conviction of sin, your moral imagina- imagination stirs. Uh, even Kurt Vonnegut uh, has his moral imagination stirred by the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, has that kind of function to it but it should uh, eventually bring a conviction of sin and the humility that allows someone to come in on the inside but for the Matthew 28 disciple it has this kind of function this dependence upon God and Father flowing out into radical behaviour that uh, brings light to the world brings others to praise God and that then sets the foundations uh, for the disciple making discipleship uh, that we have been called to in Matthew uh, 28 so I'm very excited what God might do through this as we study this over the next three months in small groups. We've got 600 people in small groups studying this sermon, reading this sermon, coming under the sound of this sermon. There's Sunday evenings as well, three or four hundred people listening to that every week. Uh, so, um, yes, it's going to be a humbling experience. Yes, absolutely. And yet, if we keep coming back to what Jesus has called us into, it's going to be a very exciting um, experience as well. Very exciting. Uh, as uh, we think about this kind of radical love, uh, we might call it a crazy love, that's going to make a real difference in the world around us. It's going to stand out and bring praise to God in the world around us. Uh, this kind of radical ex- and exclusive dependence upon our Father in Heaven, that could have an, an enormous effect on uh, both our faith and our mission uh, in the world. Uh, seeking the kingdom, seeking that future point where heaven and earth are going to be reconciled together, seeking his righteousness, uh, seeking uh, to be aligned with the will of God as he brings light out into the nations. Now, uh, apologies for running over. Um, Probably don't, in that case, have time for any questions, but I will pray and then we'll come to an end. Our Heavenly Father, we just pray for our our engagement with this sermon and our engagement with the Lord Jesus Christ over the coming three months. And we pray that uh, you would work powerfully uh, through that. For us, when we need to be humbled, 
please do that. Please do that powerfully. So that we come to you in utter, desperate uh, dependence. But from that state, we pray that you would do amazing things through our weakness in the world. We pray that you would bring us to behave in, in such a way that brings praise to you. We pray that we behave in such a way, with such a dependence upon you, that we are setting firm foundations for proclaiming the kingdom uh, with perseverance in a very, very needy world. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.